You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 227 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Yet again this month we are going to focus on psychedelic history because sometimes it is nice to have a theme. My guest in this episode is a filmmaker by the name of Chris Rice. Chris has made two documentaries called DMT A Lost History and Cannabis A Lost History. And soon Sacred Mushrooms A Lost History will be coming out. Do you notice a theme here? No wonder I titled this episode as I did. So let's do this. Enough ramblings from me. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, Yes, my name is Chris Rice. Uh, I am the... uh, director of the documentary films Cannabis to Lost History and DMT to Lost History. I also do uh, lectures. Um, I write. I, I make other YouTube videos and uh, host a, a podcast as well. So if you want to say it briefly, what is the lost history of cannabis and DMT? Uh, so essentially, if we look back at the historical record of the use of uh, psychoactive substances, it goes back for thousands of years, basically since the advent of civilization. I probably, like yourself, uh, was raised to believe that um, you know drugs were some type of uh, new invention of the 20th century, sort of a a byproduct of the hippie movement, um, if you will, but it, it isn't that at all. I mean, there have been uh, substances used for thousands upon thousands of years uh, as food, as medicine, as sacrament, um, to explore the uh, mysteries of our own consciousness. And I think that it's worth um, informing people of that, you know? I always wonder what it would be like to have a first mushroom trip, for instance, living in the Stone Age compared to now. I mean, it would be the same experience, but you wouldn't have to have all that baggage where you would like... uh, I wonder if you would be as equally amazed or you would be more like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, um, that's an interesting question. I obviously don't know the answer to it myself either. But what I can say is, if you look back um, at the Stone Age in particular, uh, in regards to mushrooms, uh, there is uh, a growing body of evidence that um, those people did use psychedelic mushrooms. And in fact, it it may have led to the development of art. Uh, Cave paintings seem like they are intrinsically tied to the use of psychoactive mushrooms. And there are some examples of this where um, people are actually depicted with mushrooms for heads in some of the uh, oldest cave paintings. Why do you think uh, the scientific community, the accepted scientific community, uh, look down on the use of uh, psychedelics as a tool? Because it almost seems like they view it as some sort of, well, if that's true, then humanity has been cheating. Yeah, I, I regarding that, I kind of feel like it's probably um, a misinterpretation 
on their part of what is going on when you're in that state of consciousness. For instance, um, I guess the, the question would be, are we exploring the outer reaches of our mind or are we simply inebriating ourselves in some way so that we can feel fucked up? I think that that uh, is kind of the mainstream interpretation of people using these substances. They, they're just trying to um, get high. They're just trying to get fucked up. Um, I obviously don't interpret it that way. Uh, I don't believe our ancestors uh, typically interpreted it that way either. Um, they had a deep spiritual connection with these plants. And um, these plants seem to have a deep spiritual connection with us. So much so, in fact, that, and you may be able to confirm this, I know that in my own experience, when I am on uh, psychedelic substances, it makes me think about my relationship to the ecology of the planet. And it, it kind of puts that front and center. And I know that that's the case for a lot of other people as well. When you look at history with uh, psychedelic eyes, you can almost see proof everywhere. So what have you done in those films you made to try and eliminate things that could be a projection of yourself? Because you can read into it in anything, really. Yeah, so I mean, I, I definitely think that um, that is that is a real issue. Um, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, that You know, that's a common phrase here. Um, much of my work is predicated on the work of uh, existing ethnobotanists, uh, anthropologists and ethnopharmacologists and um, and researchers in uh, just, you know, ancient Greek classicism and, and things along those lines. Um, for instance, uh, Carl Ruck, uh, who I believe teaches at BU, uh, just a few miles down the road here. Um, great fan of his work. Uh, there's also Chris Bennett. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of his research is kind of, uh, illustrated in my documentary as well. So it's less so my own interpretation of it and more so a presentation of um of the research as opposed to people having to you know read these um kind of heady academic papers i, I try and spell it out in a way that is more um readily palatable uh to the average listener so does your documentaries deal with the soma and mana uh yes to some degree uh i think in DMT Lost History, I do discuss uh, mana and um, soma is definitely something that I do put a lot of um, a lot of thought into. Uh, that is discussed in DMT Lost History as well. Um, although I don't even necessarily agree with my own interpretation in that film as to what soma is. I, uh, in my opinion, um, it really could be a number of different plants. I've had discussions with uh, Chris Bennett, who I referenced a moment ago, and he really seems to believe Soma is in fact cannabis uh, and, and not any, uh, you know, ayahuasca analog. Um, our Gordon Wasson, on the other hand, believed it was likely Amanita muscaria mushrooms. McKenna believed it was uh, psilocybe-containing species. So there are a lot of different interpretations as to what it was. But what we can say is that it was something extremely significant to the ancient Vedic people and that um, you know they basically revered it as a god. And then somewhere along the lines, uh, Hinduism 
ceased uh, using whatever the Soma elixir actually was. And uh, what kind of proof do they have for arguing that Soma could be cannabis? Um, there is actually, I, I wouldn't be able to point you to the specific um, anthropologist off the top of my head, but there was someone who actually discovered a bowl um, used in the production of cannabis. Uh, I'm sorry, in the production of Soma, a, a bowl used in the production of Soma. It, in fact, it may have been a Soma stone, um, kind of like a mortar and pestle situation. And uh, it allegedly contained cannabis residue. As far as evidence of uh, psychedelics in uh, in the past, you, we have the cave paintings that could be a, a sort of evidence, and then this soma uh, connection in the Hindi culture. But is there anything in between? Because it's quite empty. Uh, well, I mean, one thing that uh, I would point to is um, modern egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, in New Guinea, for instance, where they continue to use psilocybe mushrooms, uh, you know, kava seems to be very prominent in, in these types of cultures as well, um, iboga. And there's also uh, some evidence, you know, in the ancient world to suggest, you know, outside of uh, ancient India, in ancient China, there is use of cannabis and opium. Uh, there are ancient gravestones that appear to contain uh, cannabis for some reason or another. Um, there are puma bone um, snorting tubes that are that have been discovered that date back thousands of years um, that have been found in South America that were um, that are thought to be used with yopo. A yopo is uh, is the seed of a tree. Um, that grows in South America and it contains uh, dimethyltryptamine, DMT. Um, but so the, there's a lot of evidence in, in the ancient world, you know, between, between the time of the cave paintings and uh, the ancient uh, Vedic people. But then, um, you know, thereafter, uh, especially in uh, ancient Greece, uh, ancient Egypt and so forth, um, there is additional evidence there as well. You have this famous story of Moses and the burning bush and people have claimed it could be DMT and that, but isn't all that projection, even though it's an acacia tree? Well, I mean, the acacia tree uh, is native to that region of the world. Um, Moses' experience was certainly otherworldly, uh, you know, definitely could be, could be something that uh, is in line with um, you know, the DMT experience where you meet some type of higher, uh, higher power or a higher consciousness, a higher intellect at the very least, um, in comparison to oneself. Um, Acacia does grow, you know, native in that region of the world as well. So I think that that juxtaposition is what leads people to believe that that may be the case. Um, but that's not my original theory or anything like that. Um, that has been studied by um, professors in, in Hebrew studies. These days, if somebody writes down a psychedelic experience, they usually write that, oh, I had a psychedelic experience, and then they describe it. So a thousand years ago, maybe those some of those sacred texts are psychedelic experiences. Uh, wouldn't they have like written a term for it in those times? Because it seems to be devoid of saying like, oh, I took this or that, apart from maybe Soma then. 
Um, yeah, so I, I actually have a couple of different answers to that question. First, um, you know, at that time, there there are some more direct descriptions of soma, uh, which is just what they happen to call the plant at that time, um, of bong, uh, bong being a um, concoction consisting of cannabis. Uh, but then also, you know, in Moses talking about the burning bush, um, they don't go so specifically as to describe what bush it is. Uh, but the very fact that he is talking to a burning bush seems like it may be analogous to, uh, you know, some type of plant causing um, his psychoactive experience. With that said, though, I think that there's also the possibility that they were trying to speak in coded language, in metaphors, as they so often did, just in a way to uh, allow the priestly class of the ancient world to keep their status in society. Um, as you may know, uh, prior to Martin Luther, um, you know, religion was kind of held in the hands of a selected uh, few intellectual um, peoples you know, priestly class and so forth. Um, and it was only really disseminated uh, democratically in the way that it is now um, after the invention of the printing press. So we're looking at that through a modern lens um, and, and, you know, attributing things that we would do in modern times uh, to the ancient world. Sometimes find it strange that a society or a culture that uses psychedelics, if they did use it, uh, occasionally that they would ever move away from it yeah and i've i've heard uh varying theories on this especially for instance with soma um some people claim that an over harvesting of the soma plant led to its scarcity and then therefore uh you know people ended up uh no longer using it in their practices um there's also the possibility that um you know, for instance, when ancient Roman culture took over the majority of the world at that time, that they would have suppressed something that they considered, um, you know, hedonistic or whatever. Uh, realistically, I, I don't know the causes for any of this stuff. You know, it's um, it'll be conjecture on my part to describe in any in any way. But um, we do have evidence that continues through the Middle Ages and so forth of the use of some of these substances. Um Less so DMT, but definitely cannabis. I always imagine a group of nomadic uh, hunters laying down, smoking weed or something, and then they're watching like a, a neighboring tribe starting to build a farm and a house, you know, settling. And they're like, oh, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> relax. And then because that's the trouble, that's when the troubles began. It's funny that you say that because I... I understand your your interpretation of that, but um, when you look at some of the ancient writings regarding people who used cannabis, uh, it seemed to correlate with those people also being violent. And I know obviously that's true up until um, you know reefer madness in the 20th century and so forth as well. But like the uh, the Hashishans, which later came to be known as assassins, um, they, for instance, used you know, cannabis regularly, used hash regularly, and also um, assassinated people. Uh, prior to that, um, I believe it was Herodotus spoke of, you know, the the tribe um, that 
served as the police force for ancient Greece and that they used uh, cannabis as well. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see uh, it treated in a way as relatively passive in modern times and, and much more aggressive uh, historically. Not sure. I can't recall the source, but I, I remember reading that the assassins or they they were given large quantities of hash, and then they had a psychedelic trip. And then after that experience, their leader said, "Like, well, that's what happens when you die." And then they weren't really using it when they were killing people. They they were just like, uh, when they actually die they'll go to that trip place, you know. Uh, it's like a way to manipulate them. At least that's one one thing I read. Yeah, yeah, I've actually heard similar things regarding that too. And I think there was um, some other, you know, pleasure-oriented things uh, involved around that as well. Uh, like um, like they were presented with naked women and, and things like that, you know, or money, um, whatever the case was. But yeah, it was definitely a tactic to get people to to um do what they wanted them to do that's for sure well, my um, example there of those people uh, nomadics watching the other tribe building houses and that i was meaning also that the the troubles began when we started to settle because when we were nomadic nomadic uh, we were more free i think that's true and um we were talking about Salosave a little bit ago, I think that, you know, obviously as more and more of our society began, uh, began to become structured in the way that it is now with houses and roads and so forth, that would lead to, um, you know, less and less mushrooms um, that we're able to find because obviously the houses would be in the way of the mushrooms, the roads would be in the way of the mushrooms, and frankly, the pollution of a growing population um, could also prevent the mushrooms from growing. So as uh, culture progresses, um, you know, the plants seem to recede back into the forests and the forests began to shrink. Um, so I think that there was a lot more psychedelic experience uh, taking place in the ancient world um, than there was up until, you know, the, the recent uh, modern times. Studying the history of the Mongols and Genghis Khan and that, I found an interesting bit that because they were nomadic and uh, they were also a shamanic culture. I don't know if they used any substance or anything like that, but uh, they did take over most of the world and they did kill a lot of people. The reason they could kill so many people and take over the world was because they viewed settled people as lesser humans. And I always found, found that interesting because, in a sense, maybe they were right. It's not right to kill them, perhaps, but uh, philosophically, maybe you become lesser because you become uh, trapped and you want you know, your possessions and you become trapped in this place with a fence and a, a yard and a house, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely uh, get the um, trappings of modern life kind of preventing you from being as... Uh, as hard of a person as you could otherwise be. Uh, I would say that's definitely true of people in modern times. You know, I don't, um, I don't have to do very heavy duty manual labor on a regular basis outside of, you know, intentional exercise. Um, so I think, you know, by contrast, if I was, if I was up against a Mongol, um, I would probably die very quickly. 
Uh, and I'm sure that's true of you know most people as well. We, we spend most of our lives on computers or in cafes, not training um, to be killing machines. So why do you think it's important to uh, to know about the past of psychedelics? What good is it now? I think that the people who are opposed to psychedelics in particular should see that it's not something new. It's not something hedonistic. It's not something evil. It's something that has been a part of humanity since the beginning of time. And for us to suddenly suppress this within the past hundred years is antithetical to um, progress. Do you think it's possible, because I've had a few conversations and it's always amazed me, to be really into psychedelics and do really deep trips and still remain an atheist? You know, that's that's a great question, too. Um, I personally don't, um, I, you know, I don't believe in God in the sense of a, a bearded man in the sky or anything like that. And prior to having psychedelic experiences, I, I probably would have categorized myself as an atheist. Um, but after seeing some of the things that I've seen, I would lean more towards agnosticism in that I don't truthfully know uh, you know, what's beyond that cosmic door. I don't know what's really out there. Um, and I don't think any of us necessarily do. What I could say is that, uh, the psychedelic experiences will make you more open, um, to the possibility of a God. And I think if you are somebody who is, is presently religious, they may make you question the very, um, strict dogma that you presently believe in. Because I've I've talked to people who are uh, not agnostic. I mean, they they are atheists, and they just say it's the psychedelics is very good uh, tool, a very good tool, but it's all in the mind, and and I just can't imagine what kind of trips they've been on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't know either, man. But like, uh, I've speak I've spoken with scientists about this and so forth. There's definitely varying opinions. Some people just you know look at the very biocentric method. And believe that um, you're simply replacing the serotonin in your 5-HT receptors with psilocybin or with uh, LSD for that matter. And as a result, you're having a hallucination um, with something that does stimulate the serotonergic receptors. So much in that way, you know, you're, you're flooding that receptor with something that it responds well to and therefore you're just having a... a psychoactive experience a hallucination because of that on the other hand some people uh and i might place myself in this latter camp um interpret it more as a way of receiving information that your brain wouldn't typically receive because uh in default neural mode it seems to serve as kind of a uh gating mechanism um you know it's not advantageous to a hunter-gatherer society to be tripping balls all the time and so therefore our brain has these very uh you know finely grooved pathways for um visual cortex uh you know audio cortex olfactory cortex all, all these cortices operating in tandem but separately from one another whereas that certainly is not the case um in the psychedelic state as has been uh, illustrated by the mris performed by amanda fielding Every time somebody tells me it's an hallucination, I always uh, recount uh, this experience I had seeing this being walk towards me 
and I looked away and then I looked back and it had traveled a distance since I saw it the last time and to me I don't know I don't think a hallucination moves through space uh, and time if I'm not looking at it you know <laughs> yeah I mean it I don't know I uh, as far as hallucinations I, I suppose you could hallucinate anything um, but to me the reason that I feel like the psychedelic state is more than just a hallucination is largely due to the insights um, and the epiphanies that you will have in this state of consciousness and that may be that you don't have the ego blocking you know you from thinking about things that are a little more difficult to uh, wrestle with but it could also be that you're receiving information from a being higher than yourself and, and I don't know the answer to that but um, either way the result is the same and so I think it's important to use these tools and use them wisely. Do you recall uh, thinking about the world before you ever had any psychedelic experiences and then after if if the your view of the world has changed? I mean the physical world? Uh, I would say so yeah I mean I was definitely a little bit more pessimistic prior to um, you know, again, more militantly atheist uh, than I am now. But then also just our um, interpretation of, for instance, the plant kingdom, uh, at least in, in my experience, that had been altered. Um, I think that there, there's a lot more going on with plant consciousness than we um, typically consider. And uh, Solosa Bay has illustrated that for me. I remember uh, before I ever had my first psychedelic experience, it was the time during the time when the young George Bush, the son, you know, was president, and uh, he wasn't that popular in those days, you know. And uh, I remember I was like you, very atheist, and then I was also militant and more cynical and angry, and I was more thinking like, oh, we should figure out a plan to kill him, you know, <laughs> like. And then after the psychedelic experience, uh, I was told that, oh, don't worry about him. He's a joke. <laughs> you know, like, and, every, and I became more like more embracing the cosmic joke and that not worrying about a mosquito, you know, in the bigger scheme of things. Yeah, I think that that's a valid point as well. We do um, kind of find that we do get lost in the everyday, you know, monotony of of our daily lives um and psychedelics do kind of make you just laugh at that a little bit more um and look at it from a different perspective than you may normally look at it so yeah it, it is interesting to see it the cosmic joke as you described it is uh it's funny to see it from that perspective what i find interesting is because I, I the other night i met this uh, person i hadn't seen in many years and I knew he was uh, an avid weed smoker and he was growing it and he's, you know, a heavy user of weed. <laughs> and uh, I haven't seen him in 15 years. So I told him that, I asked him if he'd ever tried a DMT because the last time I met him 15 years ago, I mean, neither of us knew who, what DMT was. So <laughs> uh, first I wanted to check if he knew by now and he knew. But when I asked him if he wanted to try that, he like leaned back and like no, 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 no. Like and he, he didn't, he hadn't even tried it, so he didn't know what he was saying no to. I knew what you could be afraid of because I, uh, I'm a bit nervous taking it, but it's 
it's interesting this thing uh, how people can be afraid of it even though they haven't really done it so i'm always amazed that how they could how would they know yeah i I think that some people some people probably shouldn't do these substances some people who you know they're in a fragile mental state or anything like that um cannabis to me is is considerably more mild than um than other things in the category of psychedelics and i would i would categorize cannabis in the same realm as psychedelics primarily from uh it's used as an edible uh but smoking cannabis to me obviously there is a psychoactive effect but it compared to say mushrooms or dmt or anything like that it is um it is much more easygoing i would say obviously you're not catapulted into another dimension as you are you know with dmt in particular so i can see why people may be weary of um of trying it if they're familiar with the idea of what it is at least conceptually um and and you know i think some people know their limits but there's also the aspect of people being afraid of the unknown um and granted, you know, when you die, for instance, we're we're all going to experience the unknown. But some people are, you know, too tied to their ego, I believe, to uh, to look outside of that. I just find it interesting because I, I was never afraid of the unknown. I I'm more afraid of it now when I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, have you ever had this experience that it's it's, it's just too big, like the. Uh, the infinity of your, if it's your mind or God or whatever you want to call it, this conscious, this energy, this thing you're in when you're in a deep psychedelic experience, how like big it is. Does it ever? It's almost like staring into the abyss, you know, and falling in. It can be quite scary. Have Have you ever had that experience? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely it can be overwhelming. Um, it can feel like, you know, feel, feels like you're dead. Uh, the ego does kind of subside at times. Um, but at the same time, I don't know about your experiences, but for myself, there is like a, like a sense of calm associated with it as well. Like it's, um, as horrifying as it can be. Uh, it's also there, there's just this aspect to it where you feel comfortable in the state. Mm, that's true. It's a certain vibe. So even when you do a psychedelic ceremony and for some reason it doesn't work, like maybe it's not so visual. Uh, this is usually more normal with ayahuasca where you can have a, an experience but there's no visuals. Uh, you can still feel this calm, this vibe. It's hard to explain. Um it's a certain mood you get into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I would say that in some regard, there is probably a physiological aspect to that. Um, but I think also the um, restraining of your ego by psychedelic substances and the uh, mitigation of the ego by psychedelic substances probably removes some of that fear element that your ego would normally um, you know, cause to occur. So if people want to watch these films, where can they find them? Um, you can find them on Amazon Prime. Um, and also I have a YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash chrisricema, uh, I believe. youtube.com slash chrisricema. Are there any other films you've made or working on? Uh, yeah, I am currently working on a documentary called Sacred Mushroom, A Lost History. And that 
uh, captures a similar zeitgeist regarding mushrooms as opposed to, um, you know, DMT or cannabis. And it, you know, explores the history of these substances. But I also, uh, you know, do lectures and, and other documentary kind of subject matter as well. I do have one, for instance, called uh, uh, Aztec God of Drugs, where it dis- uh, describes like the use of um, drugs in the pre-Columbian uh, Americas. Um, but yeah, Sacred Mushroom and Lost History should be out eventually. Um, I think I may release part one and, and release it in segments like that. Have you ever looked into the indigenous of Australia? Because I always suspect they're doing something, but uh, they're very secretive if they have any substance. Yeah, uh, you know, although most of my work focuses on the substances people are most interested in, like cannabis and uh, and mushrooms, uh, I'm interested in ethnobotany and ethnopharmacology as a whole, and... Um, you know, the Aboriginal peoples of Australia actually use a substance called pituri. Are you familiar with this? No. It's like a, it's like an ashy kind of substance. I believe they, it, it, it consists of multiple things, um, one of which is very high in nicotine, from my understanding. And uh, and I believe they chew it as, a, as kind of a quid. But if you look at the art produced by Aboriginal people under the influence of pituri, it's very similar to uh, Southwestern Native American peyote art. So it seems like, um, you know, there are parallels there. Um, I've never tried that substance myself um, in particular, but I, I have a feeling that it's probably similar in nature to the peyote experience. The national plant or tree of Australia is... Uh, uh, is it called a wattle? I think it's a it's a heavily uh, it's a lot of DMT in that tree or plant, and it grows everywhere. Bush? No, it's a bush. Sorry, it's a bush. Uh, but the problem with this is that DMT is in most things all over the world, and the, the issue is it's very, I guess it's very modern if you want to extract it that process. So. Uh, I guess it's the only the indigenous in the Amazon who made it in that ayahuasca brew version. Yeah, so that's one of the things I uh, I tackle in DMT Lost History. I do believe that um, you know obviously we have uh, a historical record and, and information about the people of South America using um, DMT in conjunction with MAOI containing plants, um, but I have a feeling and i explore that in that documentary that um that may have happened uh in parallel elsewhere in the world um in that so many plants in so many regions of the world contain dmt so many of those plants also um exist and grow near other plants that contain mao inhibiting uh that contain mao inhibitors basically and so I basically posit there that, um, you know, that's not the only time that that's happened in history. And again, we don't know that for certain, but we can look at uh, evidence. For instance, um, I believe it was P.D. Newman uh, who wrote about the Freemason use of acacia in conjunction with Syrian rue to form some type of ayahuasca analog um, dating back to, at the very least, probably like the 15 or 1600s. 
Um, but I would imagine that elsewhere in the world that has probably happened, um, you know, several times over the course of history, whether or not it became mainstreamed, on the other hand, is a different story. And uh, do you have a website or is it just your YouTube? Uh, YouTube, you can also find me on, um, Instagram, Chris Rice MA on Instagram, uh, Facebook, I believe, is Chris Rice MA as well. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. All right, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Chris Rice MA to see his films and videos. Or simply click the link in the program notes. You are humbly invited to support this podcast and by doing so, keeping it free from corporate influence. Do you want to listen to alchemists, magicians, shamans and psychonauts? Or do you want to listen to humans possessed by dark and demonic forces that intends to lure you into their web of consumerism? I'm sure you choose the former, so please support the podcast. Join us at the round table of the divine mystery as an intergalactic spirit warrior and ally to the glorious art of alchemy. Go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist if you want to become a patron. And for only a couple of bucks a month, you will be able to access additional content, deleted episodes and other exclusive material as well. And be able to listen to episodes way before they are released. And if you don't want to do this, that's fine too. You are loved nonetheless. Thank you. I was talking a bit uh, positively about the nomadic lifestyle in this episode. So I figured why not end with the song Nomad by Nameless Archive from the album UK Pacha. Go to namelessarchive.com to check it out some more. All the links can be found over at naturalbornalchemist.com. Symbolically, we are all nomads because our spirit does not stay in the house, in the body. So if on the macrocosmic scale we are nomads... In spirit, then, perhaps, microcosmically, here on Earth, we should also be nomads. A settled spirit is dead. So why have we all settled? Perhaps we should never have given that nomadic life up a hundred thousand years or so ago. The spirit is a nomad, the body is a droid. Next Sunday is the last of the month and as usual we're going to listen to some pre-recorded talks. What I have in plan for next Sunday is more of a mix of talks rather than one long one. Also I think we are going to have some fun as well. Let's not be too serious all of the time. See you soon friends. Freedom is in the mind. It was easy In the beginning